Matthew Cheney. This morning uh, I'll be focusing really on the first part of this chapter, but I wanted to have the whole chapter there because as we'll see, the chapter is bookended by two significant events and there's um, some bit of information in your newsletters that I've just copied straight out of Matthew Henry's commentary where he talks in more detail about the second part of that chapter. Uh, the thing to note is that Edom uh, are the descendants of Esau, so Jacob's older brother, and so that that tension between Jacob and Esau, uh, even though the two brothers themselves were reconciled, that tension between the two nations of Israel and Edom remained. Between Numbers 14, which we looked at two weeks ago, and here, Numbers 20, there are 40 years. We don't know exactly when last week's incident of Korah's rebellion uh, fitted in within those 40 years, but the implication was that it happened fairly early on, uh, not long after they refused to enter the Promised Land. So we actually know next to nothing of what happened in those 40 years, except that the Lord continued to daily provide manna and water. We know that their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. And we also know that one by one, those of the older generation who had rebelled the moment they were brought out of Egypt died off in fulfilment of what the Lord had said. So from this point on, when we see this term, the people of Israel, we should think of them not made up of the people who came out of Egypt, but of the new generation, those who largely had been born in the desert, or or at least were children when they came out of Egypt. Now to us, verse 1 might simply read just like a bit of trivial historical information. Uh, Where they came to, the wilderness of Zin, when they got there in the first month, and something that happened there, Miriam died, Miriam the sister of Moses and Aaron. But these aren't trivia. Moses has deliberately worded it this way. Each of these details is a cue to make us recall the very beginning of Israel's journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land. Now, Zin is located just south of Edom, which is in the southern region near Israel, the Promised Land. And the crossing of the land of Edom would be the final leg before entering the land. But there's a a bit of a play on words here because the wilderness of Zin, with a Z, sounds like the wilderness of Sin, with an S. That's the name of the region that Israel came into when they crossed the Red Sea. Now what time of year did that happen when they crossed the Red Sea and entered the wilderness of Sin? Well, it was the first month. It was the time of the Passover, which is why that month of the Passover became not only the first month in which 
first month of their calendar year, but that month in which they would always have to celebrate the Passover. And what was the first thing that happened after the sea was crossed and after Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea? Israel sang a song led by Miriam. When we looked at this story way back when we were in Exodus chapter 15, I pointed out that it's, it's thought likely by scholars that Miriam was the author of this song. We know it as the song of Moses, not because he wrote it, but because he is the one that the Lord used to bring about that deliverance. Uh, we're told that Miriam was a prophet who led Israel in this song of victory with her band of women playing the tambourines. And the implication there is that Miriam continued to lead Israel in this way throughout their travels. So her death here marks the end of an era, but it's also the start of a new one. Just as Israel stood on the brink of a new journey after crossing the sea, so too this next generation is at the first stage of a new journey, not to the land, but into the land. So this end of the era is marked by Miriam's death at the beginning of this chapter, Aaron's death at the end of the chapter, and in the middle is a preempting of Moses' death that will come before they enter the land. So the, the last of the old generation has, is dying out and it's, it's like the last are the, the three leaders, Miriam, Aaron and soon Moses. And so the next generation of leaders uh, need now to step up and to take their place. Now in case you haven't noticed it yet, whenever we look at an Old Testament passage, we always look at how it points us forward to Jesus. How Old Testament characters are a prefiguring of Jesus, either by their similarities to him or by their notable contrasts with him. Or they are a lesson and an example for us for how we should respond to Jesus. So even though Miriam is only mentioned briefly here, we should take note of how Miriam points us to Jesus. You may know the story. We first meet Miriam as a young girl at the time of Moses' birth. She witnessed her mother putting Moses in a basket and hiding him in the reeds in the river to save him from being killed along with all the other newly born Israelite children. She was still nearby when Pharaoh's daughter found the baby and she was instrumental in making sure that Moses wasn't killed but was actually raised by his own mother and eventually adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So through Miriam's actions, the Lord ensured that Moses was raised up to be Israel's deliverer. Miriam had as her role model the midwives. 
Shifra and Puah. And we pointed out that um, their names are mentioned, but we don't actually know the name of the Pharaoh. These midwives had refused to kill the newborn children. So faith-filled and courageous women feature prominently at the start of the salvation story of Israel. Well, centuries later, another woman with the same name appears on the scene in the Bible story. The Greek name Maria is a translation of the Hebrew name Miriam. So Mary is the same as Miriam. God's choosing of a young woman with this name isn't mere coincidence. And it wasn't just that Miriam happened to be the most popular name for Jewish girls at the time. Because every Jewish mother wanted her daughter to grow up to be like Miriam of the Exodus story. This is a new and better Miriam through whom the child Jesus, the saviour whom Moses prefigured, would be kept safe from a murderous king, not Pharaoh this time, but King Herod, who had ordered the death of Israelite children. She kept him safe until the day came for him to be raised up and then to lead Israel through a new exodus, through his death and resurrection into the freedom of um, being set free from slavery to sin and death. This new Miriam is also known for the song that she sings. She praises the Lord for his redeeming hand in scattering his enemies and for keeping his promise to Abraham. It's a song that reflects Miriam's song. And just like the first Miriam, she had a role model in her relative Elizabeth, the father, the, the mother of John the Baptist. Now Old Testament Miriam had her weaknesses. She failed in that she too, along with the people, had a moment of rebellion against Moses. That's in Numbers 12. And for that she was struck with leprosy for seven days. And in this story, Miriam isn't mentioned after that point until now. Now, New Testament Miriam, Mary, wasn't without sin, but there is a contrast between her and her namesake. Uh, Old Testament Miriam expressed that rebellion against the, the deliverer. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, expressed her willingness to, to obey. This Miriam, this new Miriam, was there at the end of Jesus' life, standing at the cross. And, there she is, and she was there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, along with the 120 disciples who were praying and who were the first to receive the Holy Spirit. So, there were courageous and faith-filled women at the beginning of the story of the world's redemption. So while the mention of Miriam's death is brief, it's significant because Miriam 
points us forward to Mary and through Mary to Jesus. This chapter isn't just about reminding us of those great acts of redemption that mark the beginning of Israel's journey. It also is a reminder of what took place in the wilderness of sin 40 years ago, not long after Miriam's song. The people complained because they had no water. And in case we miss that connection, verse 13 says, These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarrelled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Now, they're not literally at the geographical place, Meribah. That's 300 kilometres away from where they actually are in Kadesh, but they're there in their hearts. Remember, this is the new generation, not the old Those who were over 40 may have remembered, when they were children, what happened at Meribah. But the point's been made that this new generation is actually no different to their parents. They still grumble and complain. They still lack faith in the Lord, even though they've grown up seeing his faithful provision. They're about to enter the land... But it's not because they've proved themselves more worthy than their parents. It's by the grace of God because of his faithfulness to his promise. Don't believe the myth that the world tells us that human beings improve with each successive generation. We're easily tricked into thinking that because of advances in education and technology and communication that's happened through human history. We, th- we tend to think that a human being today is somehow morally or ethically superior to a human being in ancient times and that future distant generations will be even better than us. The Bible has a different story. The early genealogies in the book of Genesis speak of great advancements in human civilization and technology and art, while at the same time speaking of great moral and evil degradation, culminating in the judgments of the flood and the scattering of the people from the city of Babel. Humanity thought they were improving themselves by accomplishing much, by building cities and empires and having a united society, yet in reality their hearts remained desperately wicked and they remained under God's wrath. Our 21st century arrogance over what we've achieved in which we take credit for all that we have that's good, we ignore the fact that it's all still an undeserving gift from God. And a lot of what we have today that's good is the fruit of 2,000 years of the impact of the Christian faith on the world yet the things that were raised for prayer this morning remind us human beings are still capable of the greatest depths of evil our advanced technology allows us to do the same as ancient people but on a much larger scale both for good and for evil all that we've built 
with our own hands can be so quickly snuffed out if the Lord chooses to bring it to an end. So we still wake, we still live each day by his grace, not by our own worthiness. There's another reason, though, why we're told that these waters are the waters of Meribah. And it's a reason that's not given explicitly here in Numbers, but it's given in the New Testament. And the New Testament interpretation of this event gives us insight into why it was that the Lord's instructions to Moses here were different to what they were 40 years ago. Here he's told simply to speak to the rock instead of strike it with his staff. It will help us understand why the Lord was so insistent on the method to the point that he was angry at Moses for doing it differently. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now Jewish teachers at the time of the New Testament actually taught that the world that was created from the rock at the beginning of their journey literally followed them as they journeyed through the wilderness in the same way that the smoke and the fire literally uh, travelled with them. Paul's not saying that those Jewish teachers were right, but that's what he's picking up on here. That the Lord provided water for his people from the beginning to the end. Wherever they camped, there would be water. But more important than the physical rock and the physical water was the spiritual reality of which those things spoke. The continuous supply of water signified the life-giving presence of the Lord that they knew when they entered into covenant with him. Jeremiah 2.13 calls, the Lord calls himself the fountain of living waters. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then when he was at the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Jews commemorated this time of travelling through the wilderness, on the last day of the festival when they remembered the water coming out of the rock, he stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this isn't just an idea that Paul came up with. Paul knew what Jesus had already said and already claimed, that Jesus is the rock which this physical rock signified, the one 
who gives living waters, and the waters are the Holy Spirit. So let's remind ourselves of how the water was provided the first time. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, that's Sinai, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now Moses' staff was the instrument of judgment. When he stretched it out, the Lord's power would be manifested in signs and wonders and judgments would come upon the Egyptians. It was the staff that was stretched across the Nile that turned the waters of the Nile into blood. But here, the direction of judgment is being reversed. The Lord positions himself on the rock so that when Moses strikes the rock with his staff, it's as if he's striking the Lord himself. Why did the Lord tell Moses to do this? Because he wanted them to see this principle of what we call today substitutionary atonement. When God's rightful anger is turned aside from us so that it doesn't fall on us, but it is actually absorbed by the Lord himself. Moses' staff that brought judgment upon the Egyptians is now, with the Lord's specific instructions, directed against the Lord himself. That's why the rock is a picture of Christ. The judgment that fell on him, that we deserved in our sin, means that the living waters of the Holy Spirit is now available to all who believe in him, who know that their sins and their uncleannesses are washed away because Christ the rock was struck in our place. The Lord was saying to Israel, do you want to put me to the test? Do you really want to see the kind of God that I am? Well, I'll show you who I am. I'm not just a God who uses great signs and wonders and power to defeat Egypt and to bring you out of slavery. I'm not just a God who saved your firstborn sons from death by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. I'm not just a God who made bread fall from heaven and who turned bitter waters sweet. This is the God I am. I'm the Lord who takes a hard-hearted and rebellious people whose hearts are inclined towards idolatry, who are full of ungratefulness, who are by nature children of wrath and deserving of judgment, and I remove their sins as far as the east is from the west, and I revive them with streams of living water. I'm the God who binds myself to them in a covenant, who promises to be their God forever with an oath, that will never be broken, no matter how badly they fail in their part. And I'm the God who will one day step into this world, walk among them, and who himself will be struck by the rod of judgment to atone for their sins once for all. Do we need any more proof of the goodness of the Lord and the fact that 
the God who sent his son, who came and stood in our place, was condemned by both men and by God, who bore all of our grumbling and our complaining. And in the face of our grumbling and complaining, he graciously and abundantly gave us the opposite of what we deserve. The place where this happened was named Massah and Meribah, which means testing and quarrelling. In that place, the Israelites asked, is the Lord among us or not? Even though any of our attempts to put the Lord to the test is an assault on his character, he shows that he's more than able to pass any test we presume to throw at him. In fact, he'll far exceed our expectations. He'll show him as the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So here at the end of their journey, their grumbling is the same, but the instructions given to Moses are different. Why? Well, it's because what happened at Meribah isn't needed here. The rock has already been struck. The Lord has already borne, already dealt with the judgment for their sin and for this particular sin of complaining about the water. What he did by standing on the rock as it was struck by Moses had already ensured the ongoing provision of water for Israel. There wasn't any suggestion that the Israelites could stop him from providing water just by being naughty. So the symbolic act that spoke of the substitutionary atonement the Lord had accomplished 40 years ago is not needed here. Moses simply needs to speak to the rock in faith that in what the Lord did 40 years ago still applied. It didn't need supplementing or updating or repeating. The picture we get in verse 10 of Moses is of a grumpy old man. He finally snaps after putting up with two generations of grumbling. He calls them you rebels, which is the Hebrew word mara, which means bitter. And in using this word, he's recalling that earlier event. Uh, Before the waters of Meribah, they came to a spring where the waters were bitter. And the Lord told Moses to throw a log into the water and the water became sweet. But they continued grumbling. He's telling them here, you're just like your parents. You're bitter and you're faithless. But then the Lord turns the tables on him. I think we've, we're out of sync here with the verses. Oh, don't worry. In verse 12... He says, you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. Why? Because in his words and in his action of angrily striking the rock twice, Moses painted a picture of the Lord as the grumpy old man. 
Moses displayed a lack of faith in what the Lord had already done, that it still stood in place. His grace given at Meribah was still being poured out at Kadesh, a name which incidentally means holy. The Lord's holiness is displayed not only in his separation from and his intolerance of sin, but also in his consistency in remaining true to what he's already said and done. But by trying to repeat Meribah by striking the rock, Moses was essentially saying to the people, your sins are too bad. This time you've gone too far. You've annulled what the Lord did in the past. You've exceeded his own ability to make sure that his word still applies. And now we've got to push the reset button and start all over again. For the moment we say anything along the lines of, my sin is too big for God to forgive, or I know that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm not sure if his death covers that one that I've just committed, or that one that I've just witnessed someone else commit. It's not just that we have a deficient understanding of grace and will struggle in our own sense of assurance. By saying that, my sin is too big for God to forgive, we're defaming God. We're saying that we're able to do something that makes us more powerful than God. We're claiming to be able to commit a sin that will render his grace insufficient, that will make Jesus' death powerless to save It will mean that God has not only been untrue to his promise, but he hasn't been able to save his people from their sins. That's why Moses was so strongly disciplined by being kept from entering the promised land. What he did wasn't just carelessness in following the precise instructions. It was a defaming of God's character and it was robbing the people of their assurance of grace. What God accomplished in the cross and resurrection of his son was final, complete, entirely sufficient to deal with our sin. We were crucified with Christ. We died in him to sin and now we have been clothed in the perfect and complete righteousness of Jesus. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. As finished as God's work of creating was finished on the sixth day. Which is why the day after Jesus' crucifixion was the Sabbath. The day when he rested because the work of redemption was finished. So your salvation didn't happen at the moment you first believed. When you believed you were receiving a salvation that was already completed. 2,000 years ago. And your salvation is full. It's not that Jesus died just for your original sin, as the Catholic Church teaches, and he needs to be re-offered time and again at the Mass to cover your ongoing sins. And it's not that Jesus died for all of your sins up to the moment you believed, and now you need to make up for all of the sins that you commit as a Christian. And it's not that 
Jesus died for 99.999% of your sins, but you're constantly in danger of unwittingly committing the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. See, we've all committed that sin. We all lived in that sin when we were alienated and hostile to God before the Spirit did his work in our hearts to renew us and to draw us to the Father through the Son. So for a believer in Jesus, the unforgivable sin is in the past. The work of the cross cannot be supplemented. It cannot be repeated. Christ died once for all. We cannot re-offer him. We cannot add to his work. All we can do is what the Lord commanded Moses to do. Speak. Speak of what has already been done. Speak of Christ and the sufficiency of his grace for all who come in humble and simple faith to the foot of his cross. Speak of him as the one from whom flows these streams of living, cleansing, purifying, renewing, sweet water of the Holy Spirit. Speak of this flow that never stops, never dries up, it's never turned off, it's never withheld from anyone on whom it's being poured. Let's pray. Father, we stand amazed when we see what you have done in Christ once and for all. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing can be added. It wasn't too much. It wasn't too little. It was exactly what was needed for us to be brought to you, to be reconciled to you and to be made your children. Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, in all we do, all we say, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, they might be shaped by this knowledge that we are in Christ and that he has done everything for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon us by the risen Jesus. Thank you that he gives us life and breath and faith and hope and enables us to walk in a way that pleases you. We ask, Father, that we may never grieve him and his presence in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will fill us and enable us to live a life that pleases you and the Father and the Son, in whose name we pray.